Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, we're taking a look back at two Bullseye interviews with Stone Cold Music Legends. Two music legends who happen to be from Cincinnati, Ohio, where this show just started airing. First up, Bootsy Collins from 2011. Bootzilla, the pride of the natty. One of pop music's greatest bass players. Legendary for his contribution to James Brown and the JBs and to Parliament Funkadelic and to his own band, Bootsy's Rubber Band, and to many, many, many years of hits. He's the owner of one of the heaviest bass sounds in the world and one of the architects of funk. Earlier this summer, he dropped a new single called Stars. It features Dr. Cornell West, Steve Jordan, Bella Fleck, and many, many more. It's part of a fundraiser for the Music Cares COVID-19 Relief Fund, put on by the Grammys. Let's listen. As a people we have crawled before, the struggle is pretty hard to ignore. Bootsy Collins, welcome to Bullseye. What's going on, Jesse? How are you? I'm doing good, man. How about you? Oh, I'm doing really good, man. And, uh, you know, just getting back out here on the road and doing that thing. And uh, it's it's coming, connecting with the people again. It's, it's a good thing. I, I want to ask you about learning to play the bass. I, I know that your uh, somewhat older brother, who you played with for many, many years, was a guitar player. Yeah. It, yeah. Was it that sort of classic situation where y- your brother got the glamour spot and you ended up playing the bass? Well, n- n- not exactly. It was kind of more like um, he played guitar and I wanted to play guitar as well. So I started off playing guitar, but one night his bass player couldn't make a gig and I wanted to play with him so bad it didn't matter what I played, you know. I could have played drums or I could have played piano, which I had no idea how to do at the time. (laughs) I would have told him, let me do it, you know. So it really didn't matter. And uh, we did this gig um, and I was playing bass and, you know, it just felt so right. You've always said that you wanted to play bass the way that Jimi Hendrix played guitar. Yes, yes, yes. I wonder both how you ended up feeling that way and, and also whether your brother being uh, being almost of another generation but also being a guitarist was on the same wavelength as you. Well, um, I don't, probably not. Um, but, you know, that's kind of... I came in at a time where Jimmy was like, God, I mean, I just felt like, man, this cat just not only musically, but cosmically just opened the whole world up to me, you know? Um, he made me see that I could not only um, play, you know, all these wild things and all these different wild sounds that I'm hearing, he showed me that I could even dress as crazy as I wanted to. And um, and I always looked up to him for that, 
even when I was with James Brown, sitting on the back of the bus, you know, uh, popping acid and smoking weed and listening to Jimi Hendrix, that wasn't allowed on James Brown's bus. <laughs> Man, where are you from? You know, you don't do that. But I did that and I wasn't doing it to be um, snobby or uh, take this James Brown or none of that. It was just that's what time it was. And that's where I was at. And that's where my whole heart was at. When did you first meet James Brown in person? Um, that was when they were recording. Uh, what year was that? It was they were recording uh, Lick and Stick. What year was that? That was 60 something. Um, I forget the exact year. Wow. Mama, come here quick and bring that lick and stick. And when the band took a break, he, he called us in and um, our rhythm section got a chance to, to play uh, lick and stick. I guess he was testing us to see, um, you know, uh, what we what we felt like with him. Could you tell it was a test at the time? Oh no, no, not at all. I didn't, you know, I didn't care what it was at the time. It was, <laughs> it it was like, man, I get the opportunity to play, you know, for James Brown. I mean, you know, the, you know, it didn't even matter what it was. You know, James Brown asked us to do this, and if we had never got to play with James Brown, that in itself probably would have been uh, enough for me at that time. It was like, it was just incredible. James Brown was famous for his incredible drive and yeah. perfectionism yeah. that maybe even bordered on madness. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. Um, uh, I think it did border on madness because every time we'd play a show, you know, he'd, um, he'd call us in the back room and say, uh, nah, son, you just ain't got it. Yeah. You ain't got the one. You know, I mean, every show we had to hear this, you know. And it was like, we knew we were killing him. We knew that the people were just amazed at, you know, our sound and what was going on, you know, at the show. We knew it, you know. Um, and then he would call us back and tell us that. And I didn't realize till years later that it only made me want to practice that much harder. You know, uh, us as a band, it made us want to get as tight and play as tight as we possibly can. So all of what he was telling us, uh, he was using reverse psychology on us. And we we didn't have a clue. You know, it was more about, you know, this is James Brown telling us this. They have this saying in uh, baseball that uh, winning is the best chemistry. Yeah. Um, and I imagine that part of what made you feel good about doing, uh, about working for, a, you know, despotic ruler. Yeah. Was the fact that you were in a band that was yeah. Yeah. undisputedly yeah. the best and untouched even since then. And I wanted to know how to be and how how you get to be the best like that. I wanted to know that. I wanted to feel that. I wanted to be a part of that, you know? I wasn't getting that from out there in the street. That part would have to come from 
James Brown, and I knew I w- I knew who I was with, uh, even at that young age, and I wanted to get as much of it as I could. When did you realize that this huge sort of schism in your career, this huge breaking point, was an opportunity for you to pursue being the Jimi Hendrix of the bass guitar? <laughs> well, you know... I guess when it when it first happened, I didn't know what to think. You know, we were so messed up that, you know, on the ride home about, man, can you believe we just, you know, we're not playing with James Brown anymore. You know, we're on the way home. What are we going to tell mama? You know, that's like, you know, that was my initial thought. Like, what am I going to tell mama? You know, she, she, you know, she just knows I'm out here just having, you know, a good time with James Brown. I'm going to be with James Brown. This is go- This is forever, man. And you're sending checks home, too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, for the first time in my life. I mean, a real check, you know. Um, and so, um, you know, we get home and I get through that phase of it. Um, and then, you know, we get straight to rehearsing, you know, putting the band uh, back together and putting shows together. And, and, um, and so... You know, that part you're talking about, uh, getting to the Jimi Hendrix phase of it, I think kind of um, evolved as the band evolved. When we got with George Clinton, I think that was when I first realized um, I can do this now. This is the time to do this. It was in the perfect situation with the perfect uh, freak, you know, George himself, who was... Uh, not only behind it, that was instigating it. I gave to George any and everything that I could come up with, and he was open to accept it. And it, as a matter of fact, he wanted to see what I had to bring to the table. And so that inspired me. He allowed me to go in the studio and experiment. You know, he didn't look at me strange when I started bringing pedals and hooking up the bass to it. And he he, he wanted the experiment. You know, it was like, bring everything you got uh, because George wants it. So he was the whole opposite of what James Brown was. That was Up for the Downstroke by Parliament, one of the first songwriting collaborations between George Clinton and my guest, bassist Bootsy Collins. It seems like George Clinton's great revolution was that he brought in all these brilliant, brilliant yeah. players. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. You know, notably uh, um, among others, Fred Wesley from uh, the JBs. I mean, uh, Gary Scheider. Yeah, well, actually, I brought Fred and uh, Maceo, uh, you know, when I came, because when we was with James Brown, I had 
always spoke with Fred and, and Maceo about, would y'all play in my band once I get it together and this, that, and the other? And they said, sure, man, you know, because, you know, then, then nobody really believe it, you know. Uh, but when I got with George and I called them, and they were so sick and fed up with James Brown, they was like, we ready, man, we ready. You know, what, what do you need us to do? They came straight to Detroit, and they joined the mothership. It seems like the revolution really was... George Clinton realized he could be the guy who could yeah. tell all of these other brilliant musicians, hey, why don't we try doing something crazy together? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? It, it wasn't even about uh, George saying, hey, let's try something crazy. He already had the crazy going on. It was just giving us an outlet to be crazy. And he would allow us to do any and everything we wanted to do. And to have this kind of referee in your corner, you know, people just don't get that. You either have, no, uh, you can't do this and you can't do that. They got so many different rules and regulations that they really cut the musician's um, creativity off. George was the complete opposite. He was voting for your creativity. He was, you know, he was like a, a fan of your creativity. He wanted you to bring it all, and he was rooting for you. Hit it, fellas. One of the things that's really amazing to me about um, P-Funk when it really got rolling in the mid-70s is that it was was so broad. Yeah. In that there were these these parliament records that were just like a a heavy, funky version, a a great radio music. And then there's these... There's these Funkadelic records that are just <laughs> insane. Right. <laughs> and you've got a group, and all the lady singers have a group, and Fred Wesley has a group, and yeah. everybody's making music together in all these different avenues. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, you know, that was, um, I think that was more of the, the genius of George's mind, um, where he saw, um, he saw like Barry Gordy, so, but only it was like uh, his freak flag. He just he just flew it. Not only he flew it, he was a part of it. He was he was in it, and he was encouraging it. And his whole house was was what you got. This was George's house. He had all of these different groups signed to these different major labels. These are not small labels. I mean, major label companies that George, you know, uh, hooked up and had us signed to. And that was incredible. More with Bootsy Collins still to come. After a quick break, the star sunglasses and why Bootsy Collins put them on. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Some days reading a bunch of headlines just isn't enough. You need to let the news sink in. On Consider This, NPR's new daily news podcast, We can help you do that. Each day, in about 10 minutes, you can find out not just what happened, but why and what it means. Consider this 
New episodes every weekday afternoon from NPR. I'm Riley Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And together, we host a podcast called Still Buffering, where we answer questions like, Why should I not fall asleep first at a slumber party? How do I be fleet? Is it okay to break up with someone using emojis? And sometimes we talk about bugs. No, we don't. Nope. <laughs> Find out the answers to these important questions and many more on Still Buffering, a sister's guide to teens through the ages. I am a teenager. And I was two. Butts, 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 butts. No. <laughs> Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we're hearing my 2011 conversation with the one and only Bootsy Collins. He's one of pop music's greatest bass players. He's played with James Brown, Parliament Funkadelic, Snoop Dogg, you name it. Let's get back to our conversation. When was the first time you put on your uh, star sunglasses and <laughs> became the Bootsy who we know as Bootsy? Wow. Um, it was in 1975. Um um, that's when I, f I first put them on because I stumbled across, well, first of all, I went out looking for two things. One thing was a person to make the star base, which I call the space base, and the star glasses. I knew that I needed these things. Uh, I used to draw them all the time at school. Star glasses on the stick man, you know, and he had a, a star guitar. I used to draw that all the time. I never knew it would wind up being me. Um, but when I got the opportunity, when George gave me the opportunity to, to do a solo thing, I was like, man, I can't, I can't look like anybody else. I got to, you know, I want to see through stars. You know, I want to uh, not only see through stars, I want to have star glasses on that that will, that are like mirrors. So when the kids look look at me in my face, they see themselves. So this was a whole concept that I kind of had dreamed up. I was on a mission because I was, you know, recording a record at this particular time uh, in 1975. I was recording a record and I'm thinking, OK, pretty soon we're going to have to take pictures for this. And I got to have these two things that I know I need. Uh, and so our manager, George's manager, who actually wound up managing me, lived out in L.A., so I got a chance to come out to L.A. and stay for a, a couple of weeks. So in that couple of weeks, I'm fine. I'm trying to find this person that makes these star glasses. Who's going to make these star glasses? So I'm walking up and down the street broke as heck, you know, um, uh, and wanting these star glasses. So I, I happen to wind up in a place called Optique Boutique, um, and I asked them, because they had so many different weird uh, glasses. Actually, they had Elton John's glasses in the um, up in the window. And I was like, this is the place. This is the place. I went in there and started talking to the guy, and um, we got to kicking it, and he realized I was an up-and-coming uh, musician that really didn't have no money. But the idea sounded great to him, and he put it together for me for $250. It was, it was a movement that really that really had 10 solid years and yeah yeah i i wonder if it was hard for that to stay together when everyone was so much doing their own thing and also everyone was so high wow um 
I would probably say the first, probably the first five years, it it, it would really wasn't hard. Um, I think it it became really hard when everybody started realizing money is being made. Um, that's when, uh, and that's usually when you know, um, um, well, especially back in that in that time, that's when the problem really started. You know, um, and then the other problem was George was having more fun than anybody. <laughs> you know, and um, he's supposed to be steering the ship. Yeah, he's supposed to be. You know, he's the commander of the ship. And he's acting a bigger fool than anybody, you know, um, which was fun. It was it was funny as heck. But at the same time, wasn't nobody, you know, everybody felt like they wasn't getting paid. And I think that was the last five years of what you what you're talking about. I get the impression that maybe George Clinton was the kind of guy who rather than being rather than maliciously taking money for himself. Yeah. Um, yeah he was simply operating on the principle that we should just spend whatever we need to spend to do anything that we can think of. And inc- then funk it. Including, <laughs> including like motherships yeah. and just drugs for everybody. Yeah. And yeah. then, a- a- and his plan was just, well, we'll just try and make enough money to cover that. <laughs> well, you know, he didn't even have a plan. You know, it was more like... um you know, back in the day, um, when you would come to somebody's house, you know, you would come in, you know, it was like, you know, here, take, have a joint. Come on, have a seat, you know. Um, and then you would kick it. You would crack jokes. And, you know, so that's George's whole um, um, mentality. You know, it wasn't about no business. You know, he wasn't. James Brown was like uh, a businessman. You know, uh, George didn't want to have nothing to do with the business. You know, um, he was just out to have a good time on the mothership. He was, you know, the director. You know, he was, you know, driving the mothership. He was just having a great time, you know. And as long as everybody could roll with that, then, you know, we'll all have a great time. You know, Um, and I think that was a I think that was a great uh, opportunity and that was a great time and a great vibe that George had um you know but at the same time you know everybody was uh you know was getting hit with bills and couldn't pay this was getting married and having babies and the responsibility thing started kicking in and George you know he's not responsible for nothing you know and he'll let you know that <laughs> May you as long as you want but never want as long yeah. as you live, baby. While living in a world of freedom. You're, you've been recording regularly through your entire career. And yeah. I, I think that your new album, which is called The Funk Capital of the World, yeah. is kind of different. Uh, there's this thing called the griot, which is a, a kind of a, a, a West African tradition of of storytelling yeah. that a lot of like culture theorists point to as the source for um, a lot of African-American musical culture. It's a kind of storytelling that's, that's married with music. Yeah. Yeah. 
And there's a lot of storytelling on this record. There's Al Sharpton talking about James Brown. There's a, there's a really great track with Samuel L. Jackson talking about growing up. Samuel, yeah. Let me drop a little knowledge about how I got from Chattanooga, Tennessee to big city, L.A. Why did you want to make that uh, the centerpiece of, of this album? Well, mainly because um, I felt like it was time to, uh, I call it spreading hope like dope. <laughs> You know, it's like, I felt like, you know, I wanted this record to be bigger than a me record. Um, and meaning uh, bigger than just me putting out a Bootsy record or a Bootsy Rubber Band um, record. I wanted it to be uh, something totally different. And I needed to get storytellers uh, because I felt it was really necessary for not only today, but the generations to come. So it will kind of point back to where I got my funk from uh, and how we grew up. I think uh, this album points to that. Um, and that's what I was really happy about doing. Bootsy, I, I have one last question I want to ask you. And I have to admit, it is a question I have uh, I, I've wanted to ask you for at least 20 years. Wow. Wow. I hope I can answer it. I think you can. Jeez. Uh, Bootsy. Yeah. You're a superstar, right? <laughs> uh, twinkle, twinkle, bobble. <laughs> Bootsy Collins, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to come be out in Bullseye. Oh, thank you so much. Keep that funk alive, Evan. Bootsy Collins. We mentioned it at the top of the show, but he's got a new single called Stars out now. He's using it to raise money for folks working in the music industry who've been impacted by the pandemic. And goodness knows that folks working in the music industry have been impacted by the pandemic. We'll have a link to support the cause on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where my daughter Grace and I just completed our greatest project, our magnum opus, which is uh, from our friend Mark Frauenfelder of Boing Boing's book, Maker Dad. It's like a little gimbal thingy that you attach to a kite string, and then you attach a tiny USB camera to that, and then you fly the kite, and you shoot stable video from a kite. Did this all with a hand drill and some super glue. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien, who, judging by his social media presence, is currently at a lake house somewhere in Minnesota going insane. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can also keep up with the show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.